if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in and out um, of Genesis 1 to 3. And let me explain what I'm doing this morning. I was wrestling. I wanted to start Genesis chapter 4 today. But as I was thinking about it, there was so much that went through my head of how do we catch up after basically six weeks away. And so rather than do Genesis 4, which we'll do next week, um, The Way of Cain, what I wanted to do was a bit of a recap. And it's certainly something that uh, others have done it. And Peter himself says, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to recall at any time these things. I think sometimes it's important to have the main points in our heads, to recall them. Uh, and to stick them there. And so what I want to do is just review uh, the last number of months that we have been in Genesis uh, 1. We began looking at it on January the 8th of this year. And uh, I took a break uh, on April the 16th when we reached the end of Genesis chapter 3. I did a, just a brief calculation in my head, and that was it's at least 40,000 words. That's about a 175-page novel. And uh, as you know, sometimes we just need to go back and refresh ourselves on what we've covered. Um, not only that, in between all this time, it's been about a 13-week series, but there's been Easter, where we took a break for Easter. And then there's been the Lord's Prayer, which uh, Pastor Andrew and Barry served us so well in opening the Word of God uh, to us. And so we were jumped out of the series. Um, I know that some of you fall asleep, and so... Uh, you maybe have missed a few things here along the way. You've gone on holidays. Others of you are new. And uh, so it's helpful to just come back and get it in our heads where it is we've been going. One of the books that I have been helped by as I've been working through Genesis is uh, entitled The First Chapters of Everything, How Genesis 1 to 4 Explain Our World. And it's very true, uh, but I would add to that, if I would be so bold, actually also chapters 5 to 11. And Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 11 are a description, an explanation of this world and why it is the way that it is. And it really matters that we have this embedded in our hearts and minds, that we think it through. The first 11 chapters of the Bible, after all, are what we call primeval history. In other words, they are history of humankind. Redemptive history starts uh, with the birth of Abraham uh, through Terah and then his call in or, uh, Genesis chapter 12. But up until then, it is the history of humanity, the history of humankind in those first 11 chapters. And there's four significant events that take place in there that are sort of foundation points for understanding why the world is as it is. The first is creation that God created this world. The, the biblical cosmology is different from the cosmology that you will find in university or you will find in your, uh, in your grade uh, 11 uh, biology class or physics class. It's a different cosmology. All cosmologies require faith, just like the biblical cosmology. But we have an understanding in Genesis 1 to 11 of how this earth came to be, how the universe came to be. So one of the main events is creation. The second significant event which affects all of humanity is the fall. Genesis chapter 3 describes that. The fall means how we rebelled against God, how we departed from God, why we are in such a mess. And in that 
description of the fall, we find out how human relationships have been affected, how divine human relationships have been affected, how the world in which we live has been impacted. And so the fall is critical in understanding why the world is the way that it is. And then you come to Genesis chapter 6, uh, 6, 7, 8, and 9, and you have a description of the universal worldwide flood and why that came to be and its impact on humanity. And then you come to Genesis chapter 11 and you have the Babel, Babel, Babel incident and why there are so many languages in the world and how the world has been scattered and why the world has been so divided and the purpose behind all of that. So the first 11 chapters are critical in our understanding and making sense of ourselves and the world in which we live. As I've been working through uh, Genesis uh, so far, there's been a few convictions that have been settled and growing in my heart and mind. And I'll share them with you just so we can bring it back together. And the summary is before we dive into chapter four. But the first conviction is this is my father's word. By that I'm referring to the Bible. I believe that the Bible is God's speech given to us, God's resported speech given to us. Its words are pure. Its words are sure. Its words are eternal. Its words are life-giving. As Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And the specific point that I make in saying this is that the word of God is consistent in its teaching about Genesis 1 to 11, that it was real historical events that took place in history and time. In other words, you can't hive off Genesis 1 to 3 in particular and give them a unique interpretation which is not then followed through through the rest of the Bible. In other words, the rest of the Bible is consistent in its declaration of the historical reality of creation, the historical reality of Adam and Eve, and the implications of that for our ongoing existence in this world in which we live. Let me read just a few scriptures for you that affirm this. Deuteronomy, for ask now of the days that are past which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth. That's in Deuteronomy. In 1 Chronicles now, uh, a number of years later, for all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Nehemiah, again, years later, thou alone art Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them. And then the book of Psalms, which is the prayer language of the people of God, which often turns to God, references God and creation again and again and again as a help to God's people. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky of above his handiwork. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Just like Genesis 1, in the beginning, God said, the psalmist goes on, he gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Psalm 189, 11, the heavens are thine. The earth is also yours, the world and all it contains. For you have made them. 
Psalm 121, my help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, declares that the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, he is the God, he alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. He has made heaven and earth. Another place in Isaiah. Thus saith the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. Jeremiah, it is I who by my great power and outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and the animals that are on it. Jonah, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Jesus in Matthew talking about divorce and remarriage, he says, I answered, have you not read that he who created man and woman from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus in another place, for in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of the creation that God created. In Acts, as the people are worshiping God, they heard this. They lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who did made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul in Colossians, for by him all things were created, both in heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created by him and for him. Hebrews, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are invisible. Revelation, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you did create all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Loved ones, that is but a smattering of the references in the word of God from Genesis to Revelation that affirm that God has made this world and formed it by his word. We can say, this is my father's word. This is its sustained testimony. And there's a pastoral help as we think of this and work it through in our hearts and minds. Um, Psalm 121 says, my, where does my help come from? My help comes from God, the maker of heaven and earth. That's astounding in our lives as God's people. When we're up against the wall, when we're up against a health crisis, a financial crisis, a relational crisis, when we don't know what to do, when we don't know where to go, when our resources are at, at the end of what we can provide and then some, we look to God and what do we find in God? We find help from who? The one who made the heavens and the earth. As Jeremiah says, O Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Do you understand, loved ones, how much of a help it is in your faith and in your need and in your praying when you understand that it is God who spoke this world into existence and it is that same God who comes to your aid when you are in trouble. This is my father's world. This is so important for us to understand. The Bible affirms again and again and again that in the beginning, God. At a specific point in eternity, time began to exist. God spoke this world and universe into a being. It is his world. He created time, space, matter, and energy. He spoke it into existence. 
He directs it. He maintains it. He orders it. There is nothing in this universe or in this world that is outside of the sovereign power and might of God. There is nothing in this world that exists independently of God. There is nothing in this world that is equal to God. This is his world, every bit of it, every corner of it. He made it and he maintains it. So what they say in Revelation 4 is the angels and the, uh, the elders and uh, the, 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 the four uh, cherubim, they say, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and because of your will, they exist and were created. It matters that we understand when we look around this world that we walk in, this world that we breathe its air, this world that we marvel at, that we never, ever, ever lose sight that this is God's world, every bit of it, every square inch of it. And then thirdly, this is, I think, our Father's focus. Why did he make this world? Why did he create this world? Well, he created it intentionally and purposefully to be a habitation for male and female. He created this world for humankind. Know that, understand that, realize that. For this is what the Lord says, God is the creator of the heavens. He formed the earth and he made it. He established it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. This is what the prophet Isaiah tells us. And so we are not here by accident. We are not here through the process of evolution. We are not here because we have evolved from one species to another species to another species to pre-Adamic species to Adamic people. We are here because God created male and female from the dust of the ground specifically and uniquely, completely and wholly in an instant. So wonder and awe of the psalmist as we read from Psalm chapter eight this morning. And one of the things, loved ones, that you need to grasp by this you need to hear this. You are not an accident. You are not here by chance. You have meaning. You have purpose. We as humanity have purpose and meaning. And we as individuals are here because God has set us here. Psalm 139 says we have been created in our womb by the work of God. That God knows every one of our days before there was yet one of them. That God knows every word that we will speak before we speak it. That God knows the hairs on our heads. God's knowledge of you and I is not accidental. It's not something that grew out of nothingness. It's because God created us with meaning and purpose in this world. Psalm 115, 16 says, the Lord, or the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the human race. Do you understand that? This world in which we find our sustenance, this world in which we find just so much joy and relaxation, this world with all of its pain and sorrow, this world with all of its need, God has given to us as his representatives to nurture and to care for and to benefit from and to be blessed by. This is my father's word. It tells me consistently that he made this world. This is my father's world. It is his. It is every square inch of it belongs to him. And this is my father's focus. He has given it to us as humankind 
to flourish in. As we come to Genesis 1, we're reminded there that in the beginning, God. But God is real, and that changes everything. It's not just a saying, loved one. It is so true. In the beginning, God. We have there in Genesis 1, if you are aware, there's wonderful order and flow to it. One of the things we pointed out, which is helpful to be reminded of, God is described to us in many different ways. Just as a a man can be known as a father, he can be known as a pastor, he can be known as a husband, uh, different ways of describing his realities. Genesis 1 describes to us God who is transcendent. It uses only 35 times the word for God, which is Elohim. Elohim is a word, that a name for God that speaks of his power, that speaks of his might, that speaks of his transcendence, that speaks of his glory. And so it is that God, the God who is outside of creation, the God who is not part of creation, that God spoke this world into existence. And Genesis 1 describes that for us. And the day six is not the culmination of creation. The creation of mankind on the earth is not the culmination of creation. Day seven is the perpetual day of rest. That God's intention was that we for all ever enjoy a perfect relationship with him in a world that he has created for our benefit and for our blessing to flourish in. It's a world that he created. We saw in chapter one that is orderly. He formed it in the first three days, formed the beautiful, big, large components of the world. And then the last three days, he filled them. And then through that, he provided specifically that we might flourish and, uh, and, 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 and thrive as men and women on this earth. And he did it so that we would reflect his humanity, that we would reflect his power, that we would reflect his, reflect his sovereignty, that we would serve him and that we would enjoy him. And there's this emphasis in creation. And it's caught by, uh, by, by one that I was reading. And this is what he says. So the Genesis account of creation, Genesis 1, is remarkably human-centered. Even before we get to the creation of humanity, God separated the land from the sea to give us somewhere to live. He created plants to give us something to eat. The sun and moonlight to help us as clocks and calendars. Even the animals can be considered only in relationship to us as we are to have dominion over them. He puts an astonishing thought in our minds. Could he have created this in some way for us? Are we important in his plans? Were we in his mind throughout the process? When you read Genesis 1, read it in a way that helps you understand and that it's not fixing an interpretation in it, but see how God has made this world particularly as a place for you and I to inhabit. We've also looked at that to help us understand, and I I hope you can think this through with me, that when God created this world, what he created was a theater of redemption. By that I mean this whole world was intended by God to display for us the glory of God in redemption. Now, there is a world of theology in that that we won't dive into this morning other than just to declare that or to remind us as we've been working that, that the unfolding of creation, the, the, the creation that he made, 
and the sending of man in this world. He did it in such a way that he would be able to display the glory of God through salvation. His mercy, his grace, his power, his might, his conquest over evil, his wrath even, his judgment, his righteousness. In a profound way, all of this has been part of God's plan in creating this world in which we live. One person wrote, the unfolding of creation establishes a theater in which the great redemptive saga can be played out. Man is the main character. God's own son even becomes a man at the climax of the redemptive drama. This is the purpose for which the entire universe was created, so that God's grace and mercy and compassion could be lavished on this creature whom God had created in his own image. In the end, the theater is destroyed. We know that, right? This world will be destroyed by fire. It's a profound and humbling thought. And so God created this world intentionally to be a habitation for humanity and to declare the glory and wonder of redemption. As we come to Genesis 2-4, what I reminded you that is not a repeat of creation, but it's this intense focus now on Eden, the place that God had created. And in Genesis 2-4 to 4-26, that's a unit in the Bible, in Genesis. I think I told you, Genesis is divided, and we've divided it by 50 chapters. Um, the Hebrew doesn't divide it that way. It divides it into 10 or 11 sections, depending on how you deal with Esau. And those sections, apart from the prologue, which is Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, are started by this phrase, these are the generations of, or this is the account of. It's called, it's, in Hebrew, the word is toledoth. And it describes sections, 10 sections of varying length throughout the book of Genesis. All of them, but the first one, are are generations of men. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of, of um, uh, Terah. These are the generations of Jacob. And then it describes the reality of their family. The very first one, Genesis 2, 4, to the end of chapter 4, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth. There was no humans. And so this is the description now of the initial stages of humankind. And it focuses on life in the garden, and then life outside of the garden. And we've been following this through. Life in the garden was marvelous. Genesis 2, chapter, uh, Genesis 2, verse 4, where God created this incredible world, this incredible garden, and then he created man to live in that garden. He gave him every fruit to eat, every tree to eat. He gave him the animals to rule over. He demonstrated his authority over the animals by naming them. And then when there was no match found for him, he created Eve out of his rib. And God had placed them in the garden. And, and when Adam saw Eve, he just rejoiced in her beauty and in her perfection and in her complementary reality to him. And at the end of chapter uh, uh, 2, that section, we read that God saw that all he made and it was very good. And there was harmony and there was peace and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. And it was this place of communion with God. It was life in the garden, which is how God intends us to live into eternity. And we will return to the garden 
It was that, I think it was Joni Mitchell, but it was also a Woodstock song. I got to get back to the garden. And then you come to Genesis chapter three. And we talked about Genesis chapter three. The first seven verses are some of the most instructive but discouraging verses in human language. They describe the rebellion of man and woman against God. And it begins with this ominous statement which we've looked at. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said. And we're introduced at that point to the reality that the world is not just a material world. The world is not just a physical world. We should have got that where it says, in the beginning, God. God is not part of creation. He is outside of creation. But now we are reminded of an of a invisible reality. The spiritual reality that's all around us. We're reminded about a fall that took place in the spiritual realm that we will read more about through the rest of the Bible. We're reminded that there's a spiritual force of evil. And somehow it takes the form of a serpent. And we realize that we read that serpent, that that serpent is described finally and fully to us in Revelation chapter 13. It is the fiery red dragon. It is Satan. Uh, It is it is uh, the devil. That is who this serpent is. And his entered, entrance into the garden led Eve and then Adam to sin against God. And the rest of the biblical story then has been this marvelous, and I have really liked this phrase, kill the dragon, save the girl. The rest of the Bible, and it starts in Genesis 3.15, is about the slaying of Satan, the defeat of Satan, the crushing of his head, the rescuing of the people of God, the damsel, the church, the bride of Christ, and the rescuer being Jesus Christ. And the whole rest of the Bible is this wonderful story of redemption, this tension between the seed of Satan and the, and the seed of the woman, but the victory ultimately of the dragon slayer, Jesus Christ, and this beautiful bride, that he will present, be presented with at the end of this age. At the end of chapter 3, we see man driven out of the garden. And before that, the explanation of what will happen in this world in which we live. There's not a woman who shouldn't think of this when she bears a child. Why is there so much pain in childbearing? Is it just physical reality? Well, no, there's spiritual reality because God takes it all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the sin and the punishment that is upon Eve. So every woman who bears a child has a reminder of why she does so in pain. Every mother who has trouble with their children as they grow up experiences the tension and the reality that is part of the punishment on her. Every time there is hostile relations in a marriage, it can go back to Genesis chapter 3, where it says that the woman's desire will be to rule over her husband, but he will master her. Every man who struggles with work day to day and the battle and the wrestling and the pain and the anguish, the joys of that and the challenges of that, but then death goes back to the garden. Why do I die? Why is work such a trauma? Why is it, why is it sometimes nothing goes right? 
It's a reminder of our own sinfulness. And so Genesis chapter 3 explains why the world is as it is. It explains why there is a curse on the world, why there is thorns, why there is thistles, why there is death in the world, why there are carnivores. Carnivores? Carnivores. You know, meat-eating, blood-eating things. It's all explained in the curse. And we're reminded then in Romans chapter 8, all of creation groans, longing for redemption. I'm really messed up. I might have to wing it for the rest of the way because I've lost my way. Um, I think one of the things that then on top of this that I've been reflecting a lot and I think it's helpful for us to work through is just the exponential growth of sin. We'll see this worked out. I've been thinking this through, you know. I've been weeding my garden. It's not a good thing to go away for a number of weeks and not have somebody look after your garden. (laughs) Weeds for me, every time I weed my garden, I think of sin and I think of it in my life. And sometimes you let your garden grow and sin just explodes in your life. And, you know, every time you, I I just found these weeds that I pull them and the seeds of the weeds just pop. It's it's like popcorn. And it's the most angry, maddening thing to to pull this weed and all these seeds go off. Next year I'm going to have to deal with this. And then some of the weeds you pull out and you don't get all the root. You know, you break it, and that root is still in the ground. I've been amazed at that in my life. I've been amazed at sometimes how weeds grow amongst some of the most beautiful things in my garden. And I think that's true in my life. I, I'm doing really well with God. I'm walking with God. I'm, I'm enjoying his presence and, I glory, and his glory, and I'm having good fellowship. And right in the middle of that is sin. And I've been thinking about how Weeds spread. I don't think it's on purpose, but my neighbor brought a whole bunch of dirt brought in a while ago and full of weeds. And I find those weeds now are in my garden. My sin affects other people. You can't keep it to yourself. And so I've been thinking about this. Adam and Eve, they, they just bit an apple. What's the big deal? Not, not, a, not a huge thing. They just took a bite of fruit. Well, the big thing is they rebelled against God. They disobeyed God. They sinned against God. And the consequences of that was all of creation in the whole universe was cursed. They both had impacts on their life that were huge. Sin matters. And then you come to Genesis chapter 4, and you see all of a sudden sin is now no longer just eating an apple. It is now killing my brother. And then you come to the next part of Genesis chapter 4 and you say, sin is no longer killing my brother now. It is taking revenge on somebody and, and, and being proud of the fact that I killed somebody for just hurting me. And then you find, instead of one wife, multiple wives. And then you get to Genesis chapter 6 and everything, every imagination of man's heart all the time was only evil towards God. The exponential growth, exponential growth of sin. This is explanation of the world in which we live in. And so the rest of the Bible is the story, loved ones. Story in the real sense of the historical way, the historical story of God's redemption 
of us sinners, of God's working in this world in which we live to call men and women, boys and girls, back into a relationship with him. And God gave us hope, didn't he? At the end of chapter three, when he expelled man from the garden, he didn't destroy the garden and he didn't destroy the entrance to the garden. He blocked it. And for me, that is this huge indication of hope that one day the way back into the garden will be opened up again. And that's in fact the glory of the gospel is that God has made a way for us to make it back into the garden through Jesus Christ. We all need a savior, don't we? The Bible is clear. All have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God, the will of God, the way of God. Without exception, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our only remedy is the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. You can't buy your way back into heaven. You can't work your way back into heaven. You can't marry your way back into heaven. You can't create your own path back to a relationship with God. The Bible tells us again and again that salvation belongs to God. There is only one name under heaven whereby which we might be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. And the Bible is so clear that any who look to Christ will be saved. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. Just look to Jesus and you will be saved. And I was thinking of that as we come to the Lord's table this morning. One of the things that has struck me is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. And Paul uses a metaphor there which describes for us this remarkable, miraculous work of salvation. And this is why you've got to believe the Bible. What's, it, what's Genesis 1, 1, 3 says? And God said, let there be light. And what was there? Light. He spoke light. There was darkness. It was empty. It was void. And God spoke light. Not the sun, not the moon, but the light of his glory and grace and power and might. Now, if you believe that, then you have an image of salvation. Because in Corinthians 2, verse 4, it says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The miracle of your salvation is likened to the miracle of the creation of life. It's this extraordinary Speech of God through the work of Christ that takes we who are in darkness, and Paul says we are actually darkness itself, and he speaks the light of the glory of Christ into us and gives us life. It's extraordinary. That's why we who have that light shone into our heart come to this table with great rejoicing. 
a table in which we know that this was the body of Christ, which was broken for us. And when we drink the blood, uh, the, the juice, it reminds us of the blood of Christ that was shed for us that we might have life. The only way to the Father, the only way back to the Father in this world in which God created for us to inhabit, in this theater of redemption, the most amazing scene was the death of Jesus Christ. And it was all so that we might make our way back to the garden. As you come to the table this morning, just rejoice as a child of God that God has shone his light into your heart. Rejoice that you know that you are going back to paradise. Oh, may God speak to all of our hearts this morning. Father, we thank you for your word today. And as we just try and look at these quickly, these first chapters of Genesis again, to refresh ourselves and remind ourselves of who you are, what, is you, what it is you have done, why you have done it. We find ourselves here now, thousands of years later, still seeing the practical reality of those initial chapters of the Bible and its impact on us today. Thank you for the death of Christ. Thank you for this reminder of the path back to you and of the Savior that you sent to be the dragon slayer. Fill our heart with thanksgiving, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.